Hello everyone, this is the North East Love You podcast. My name's Matt. And I'm Neve. And for the last time together this year, we are delighted and very excited to be talking to another Newcastle Law School graduate, Dr. Funke Abimbala, MBE. We're going to talk about her story, uh, the work she's done, and the work she's done with diversity in the legal profession, and also some of the non-traditional career routes which Funke has gone on to um, following a law degree. But first, me and Neve, I just kind of look catch up because it is the last episode. Um, so Neve, how are you doing? It's just for context, it is what are we on? 22nd of May. So it's the week before exams officially start. How 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 are you getting on? Um, it's going okay. It's a bit weird revising for online exams. Um, and it's like it's very it's a very different way of doing it and like last year I was in first year so and working so it wasn't really exams weren't a massive priority whereas Mm. this year I want to do well so trying to revise trying to learn how to revise in a different way has been um interesting but it's been nice now we can see people um that I can go and have like study days with friends and things like that and go to the library and mix it up a bit so I'm not stuck in my room all the time which has been helping how is has it been for you? How's it closing up? Because it's, it's like your final hurrah, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got less than two weeks now of my law degree, um, which is crazy, bonkers. But um, no, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, yeah, it is different online exams. And there is this natural less pressure, I think, um, knowing that you don't have to memorise things in the same way as you would normally. Um, so, yeah, not too bad. The way I've my modules have gone this year I've sort of ticked stuff off as, as I've gone along so I've not I've only got a couple of exams whereas some people on my in my year have um you know four or five potentially and um, so I'm fortunate I think in that but I've still got um as I say to you I've still got 100% exam for terrorism which is um tough um it's a tough module interesting but it's tough um and an 80% exam for family um so out of your four so the for you doing second year which one are you most looking forward to and least looking forward to I think I'll be looking forward to criminal um because I think I've really enjoyed the content this year and it's the one that I think has clicked into place the best I think students always find that anyway with criminal it's Mm -hmm. very like real world like so it's quite easy to understand and Um, it's probably equity is the one I'm scared is for um, but I've been doing a lot of work for it so fingers crossed it's all going to pay off <laughs> yeah no you'll be, you'll be fine um, I think yeah the, with them being 24 hours there is that less pressure I think with equity that was big I felt like when I did them last year because they were online um, that was the one that probably I spent the longest on um, but yeah no you'll be you'll be great yeah, no, yeah. I think there's the, there's the temptation to kind of spend all day on them, but I think I've just got to try and tell myself that, that like, I've, you've got to keep it realistic, even though we've got a lot to write. Yeah. There's no point in having it all the time, like spending all the time on it. But also, I'm just glad that I've got a big chunk of my year out of the way. Most of my, all of my exams are, I think the biggest one is like 67% of my module, I think criminal, which is a smaller module anyway. So yeah. I've got quite a bit of this year under my belt already. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And how's things going in terms of next year and modules and things? 
as oh. I, I pick my modules, um, which is scary because that's yeah. like very final. Um, but I pick my modules and I got my dissertation supervisor um, appointed today. So everything's like very go, go, go and very real. So, yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's great though. I think we, should, we might have talked a bit in an earlier podcast about third year and sort of how the teachers are going more into their, ne- their niche and, and yeah it's brilliant you'll have a great time especially during the station I know you've briefly mentioned the area and I and I know although I didn't do one I know from talking to people that what you start your main your intentions at the start can change um <laughs> quite a lot probably um, but your area sounds pretty cool yeah no I'm really I'm really looking forward to it um but yeah that's that's me sorted I'm just gonna be busy next year but looking forward to it <laughs> yeah yeah I'm going off into the big wide world I'm excited um and I've loved my three years and I'm just yeah I guess I'm jealous of you because this third year although it's been online um I've it's been brilliant um so yeah you're gonna yeah. Have fun. yeah definitely I guess this, that gives us a good time to jump into the episode uh, that we actually recorded a couple of weeks ago so Funkit, first of all how are you and to get the question out of the way how has this year the pandemic year been for you personally and professionally thanks very much Matt and Neva. I'm so thrilled to be on this podcast it's always wonderful uh, to have contact with my old law school again but to answer your question, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, thank you, all things considered. it's um, It's been an interesting, well, it's over a year now, isn't it, that we've had this situation. I Lockdown for me coincided with me studying at Wharton Business School, even though I hadn't planned it that way. And um, it's all worked out fairly well. Uh, but it's been a tough time, you know, across the board, really, for many of us. And I, I just look forward to some sense of normality resuming soon frankly yeah yeah no I agree um I do I've I've, I've had the the afternoon sitting in the sun with a friend that I live with uh, in Newcastle which obviously last year because of the pandemic I wasn't up here so that's been uh yeah very nice um so before we go back to sort of earlier on in your life and and, and your career and when you were at Newcastle um I thought we'd start by asking what are you doing at the minute? Yeah, so at the moment, I am running my own consulting firm, which wasn't something I had planned to do, you know, even a year ago. Um, But it sort of really just evolved as a result of circumstances last year, really, with George Floyd's uh, murder and lots of people within my network reaching out for help uh, around race, specifically race-related initiatives, Uh, within large corporates Um, and I was still studying uh, at Wharton at the time and I thought I'd put into practice what I was learning because they're all business studies and I set up my own consultancy firm called the Austin Bronte Consultancy which I'm still running from home uh, doing really well really enjoying the flexibility being an accidental entrepreneur has been interesting Uh, Mm. it's the first time I've I've ever run my own business in this way and um, there's been lots of learning along the way but I I feel very very lucky to have been able to tap into 
my my network from my you know over 20 year career now and I've always had referrals for, for new clients essentially what I do through the consultancy firm is I still do practice as a solicitor I still do proudly hold my practicing certificate and I do a, a selective amount of work around the healthcare sector uh, so for example last year I advised on one of the COVID trials um, because I've got a lot of experience uh, around clinical trials and compliance mm. but uh, the bulk of the work that my consultancy does is advising large corporates and large law firms on how they can really leverage diversity and inclusion uh, to foster a sense of, of belonging uh, within the organization aligning that with their goals as an organization and moving to a situation where there's more equity, where you know everyone has a voice and there's a lot more representation at senior leadership level. There's a huge demand for my services at the moment, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Interesting. How has it been, I guess, setting it up and running it during the pandemic? Has it aided you or potentially stopped you? I know running this podcast, the everything being online has definitely been to our benefit because it's been so much easier to organize and record but how has it been for your consultancy firm likewise it's been very very easy actually because i'm not traveling so um all my clients have a global reach with a few rare exceptions they're very large uh, banks uh, pharmaceutical companies financial services organizations mainly so um, I've had large audiences with one pharma client. It was 50,000 globally for one specific uh, session that I ran, which would have been very difficult to achieve under any other normal circumstance. Um, the technology took a while to get used to because, of course, some people use very different platforms. Some are customized platforms for that particular organization. But they're all essentially the same, aren't they? I mean, you know, there'll be a camera, there's a way of sharing your slides, uh, audio settings. Uh, some don't have a virtual background, which I have, have a real issue with, <laughs> I must say. Uh, I don't like that very much, but, um, but it's been very, very easy. And I've been able to uh, put together a team to, to support me as well, um, including my son, who I'll talk about in a minute, who helps me on the tech side, which is wonderful that we're working <laughs> together. It's just uh, great fun. And I have a, a PA who helps me as well and a research analyst uh, who helps me. But it's been, I think when it comes to uh, time for us to travel to, to places, that probably will present more challenges for me mm. because it takes up time. Uh, and it costs the client more, frankly, because, you know, mm. I'll be charging them for the travel time and the actual travel costs as well. So it's worked out well. That was something that I was thinking, because I didn't realise that you started just um, in the last year. So what are you thinking going forward with things starting to open? How, how are things going to change? Well, there are lots of opportunities um, that always present themselves to me. I'm very, very visible and um, I'm constantly approached on LinkedIn uh, with all sorts of things. I mean, this week alone, I've been approached for three different opportunities mm. um, and they tend to range from anything to another general counsel role, legal director position uh, to non-exec positions. I was approached for a really fantastic uh, non-exec director role, which I'm very excited about. So we're, we're having discussions about that at the moment. Um, and lots of permanent roles within diversity and inclusion. So although my consultancy is under a year old, 
My actual expertise in diversity and inclusion spans across my whole legal career of over 20 years. Uh, I started advising the Law Society upon qualification because of some of the challenges I'd faced uh, entering the profession, which again, we can talk about later on. But we'll see how things go, you know. Um, for now, my priority, I must say, is to see my son through year 13. Yeah. His A-levels have been cancelled and, you know, yes. it's very disruptive. And I just want to make sure that he gets uh, his grades. He's put down Newcastle as his top choice as well. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I'm very, very keen uh, to, to attend Newcastle for computer science. So I'm hoping that all goes well. And he should be in the new Northeast later on this year. Yeah, well, um, I'll, I'll still be in the northeast, so um, <laughs> you'll have to we'll have to meet up for a coffee or something. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be lovely. I'm, I probably won't be, but my little sister might be. Um, she's hoping to go to Newcastle as well, so she's oh, finishing there the we go. 13, so. <laughs> Fantastic. Good luck to her. Um, so we touched on a little bit about things that you've done in the past, but if we could go, I want to say right back. Um, if you could tell us about sort of your really earlier years growing up until the point when you decided and and, and went up to the northeast. Yeah, so I was born in Nigeria, which uh, surprises a, a lot of people. Most people who meet me for the first time assume I was born in the UK um, because of my accent. Um, but I was born in Nigeria, very proud of that. Mm. I moved to the UK when I was eight for educational purposes. I'm born to a an upper middle class Nigerian family, very privileged Nigerian background, very aspirational, uh, high achieving parents. Uh, I'm the third generation of graduates uh, in my family. So, you know, we are a very privileged family and that's incredibly relevant uh, for, for what I'm going to share later on. I um, came to the UK, as I said, for education, was privately educated throughout. Uh, my dad worked incredibly hard to educate not only me, but my two younger siblings. I was supposed to become a doctor. He was a doctor, mum's a doctor. Younger siblings are also doctors, uh, as indeed are many family members. I wasn't keen on medicine at all. Uh, mm. I don't like uh, the sight of blood. I hate injections. I find it really hard being in hospitals. Uh, you know, these are major barriers to a medical career. Mm. So um, I kept that ambition about law very quiet, though, for my dad, because, of course, he was paying the school fees. So <laughs> uh, I was very concerned about what might happen if I revealed my legal aspirations too soon. But uh, bless him. You know, he was very supportive, shocked when I told him that I wasn't applying to medical school, but incredibly supportive. Mm. Um, I wanted to come to, to Newcastle specifically, um, having had friends who'd studied there. It was, you know, great law school. Uh, frankly, having been educated in the southeast of the country and at a boarding school, you know, very closeted, uh, very, very lovely environment, uh, but very sheltered. I wanted to experience a lot more and I wanted to get as far away uh, from the southeast as I could uh, in many ways just to experience more of life mm. um, so off I went to the northeast uh, started in 1991 so a very long time ago now uh, did a pure law degree graduated in 1994 should have of course then gone on to do you know what's now known as the LPC training contract uh, I went back to Nigeria for what I thought was just going to be the summer uh, after graduation, I ended up staying there for three years. Um, finances were really tight at this point for my father. 
and there were two younger siblings still, you know, yet to finish GCSEA level and so on. So I had to take a hit for the team, as it were. And I used that time to study um, the Nigerian bar. So I'm dual qualified mm. and came over to the UK again. So I finished in Nigeria, came straight back, uh, did the transfer tests, which is the way that qualified lawyers uh, can, can um, qualify over here, and then started facing surprising barriers at that point uh, to entry. Really quite shocked by mm. what happened. Um, so what, what were these kind of barriers? What, what was, I guess, instantly recognisable? Mm. So bearing in mind, and I went into a lot of detail about my background because I, I, I didn't expect to have any challenges with my academic records, you know, I'd worked very hard, you know, to, to get the grades I got. And there'd been no obstacles up to that point. You know, I'd worked hard and I thought that was all that was required. But it became very clear when I was applying for, and I only needed six months to, to uh, qualify. That was the other thing. I didn't need a full two-year training contract because of my roots qualification. Um, my name became a real issue. It became very clear that name discrimination was, was the issue. And I compared myself to some of my peers with anglicized names who would, would at least get their foot in the door. Um, I had some of my friends were actually West Indian. So like me, they would be black, but of course, anglicized names again. So again, they would get their foot in the door. But my name is obviously a non-anglicized name. And it took me a while to realize that that was what was happening. Um, someone sort of highlighted it to me. It's not the sort of thing that you want to accept, but the, the evidence was overwhelming. And we, we now know there's a lot of data that shows that name discrimination is real. You need to make at least twice as many applications if you have a non-anglicized non name. Uh, David Cameron actually made that focus of uh, a party conference a few years ago when he was prime minister. So, you know, it's a recognized issue. And I was very angry about that. I was really, really cross about it. Um, the way I got over it was um, I, I dropped a list because I wanted to become a corporate lawyer. And I had silly comments from recruiters like, you know, corporate law is too competitive for a black woman. You should think about uh, immigration and being in a high street practice and, you know, just really ridiculous comments like that. But, you know, I wanted to do corporate. That's all I was ever interested in. And I literally just because that particular recruiter had said that. I drew up this long list of 100 top corporate law firms in the UK and found out the names of everyone who was heading um, those teams. And I picked the phone up and I called every single one. And I did the same on the in-house side for the top 50 uh, corporate you know, in-house teams. Uh, so I made 150 phone calls over two weeks. And I got interviews that way. Once I, I got past reception and you know, spoke to the senior partners, quite often they were the senior partner of the firm running the corporate team. And they, once they heard me and actually were able to engage with me over the phone, I gave myself 30 seconds to make an impression. Um, I, I managed to get about 10 interviews that way. And that's how I got my foot in the door uh, and managed to qualify. But I was, I was really, really cross um, that that happened. It really did uh, shock me and it shook me up. Um, I thought this isn't right, actually. Uh, this should not be happening at all. So what, so th this is when you were getting into a, a, a role, into a career. Once you were in, 
um what what how, what work did, did it did it continue or did it then all become about you know yourself and needing to learn and, and work and add value to whatever you were doing or mm. were you able to keep going on the side or, or in uh, as you were working on all this sort of diversity and um yeah continuing that mm. that journey so once I got my foot in the door as I put it the, the playing field leveled out you know so mm. I was you know being very very fairly treated uh compared to my male peers there were no other I mean it's bizarre looking back now but I was the only female solicitor in in various corporate teams and I was the only black solicitor all four law firms where I worked every single one I was the only black solicitor um yeah, I was earning the same as my my peers, you know, doing the same quality work, really enjoying the work. Um, and then I, you know, I was married at the time and I had my son. Uh, I, I thought people were having babies was a natural thing to be doing when you're married. I thought nothing of it. But, um, you know, it was only after I'd had my son, I, I returned after maternity leave that I realized that um, no one else who was on that uh, career track uh, was having children at that stage in their career. I had my son when I was in my late 20s. Um, everybody else uh, in my peer group who was female in the city of London at the time uh, was waiting until they became partner. So I, I can see now that, you know, I've got a son who's about mm. to start university. Their kids are still in primary school, just about to start secondary school. So... I didn't really, I mean, I don't know if a memo went, went round that this is what the agreed plan <laughs> was. But I certainly didn't get the memo that said, uh, wait till you become a partner. And it was really difficult. And that was another um, stumbling block for me. You know, there's a very, very high cost uh, attached to maternity or having a career break. Uh, it tends to land on women because we're the ones who, who have the, you know, the children uh, and tend to have the principal care responsibilities. Um, and again, that was another thing that made me really, really cross because I thought this happens all the time and people, you know, you have babies and you're supposed to have families if you want one. And to think there was a cost attached to that that could affect my career. It was just awful returning after a year's maternity leave. And I ultimately left uh, central London altogether because I just couldn't do um, the, the very, very long hours. I still wanted to work full time but I needed to be able to work regular hours and, and that just wasn't going to happen uh, in central London. So that was the second thing that made me realize all was not well. And I started really ramping up my diversity uh, work at that point, uh, talking to other you know, women. Uh, a lot of women drop out of the profession altogether, I, I later realized uh, as a recognized issue. And my work ramped up for, from there really, because I, I was just so angry and frustrated uh, by the unfairness of it all and the loss of talent, you know, the, the, mm. the loss of talent when you think 60% um, of entrants into the profession are female, you know, it shouldn't be the case that we then end up losing so much talent later on. No, definitely. And I think, it, as you said, more, you know, more uh, girls are going in to do a law degree than boys and then more females are then qualifying. It's, but there is still this pattern that women, you know, once you have a baby, your kind of worth is less and your ability to then progress in your career is 
I guess, more difficult. But as you and a lot of people drop out, but it really, it really, it sounds like it motivated you and it spurred mm. you on. You wanted to kind of prove everybody wrong. Was there any any time where you felt like you just wanted to give up? Um, only at entry level, actually, I have to say that that was the point where I thought, my goodness, just before I started making the phone calls um, and also whilst I was making the phone calls, of course, because some of them didn't lead to meetings. So at that stage, I thought, you know, for a split second, what on earth do I do? But I'd come too far at that point, Neve. you know, it was um, it was very much a case of I didn't want to let my father down who you know, paid for me to study law as an overseas student at Newcastle. And um, I was, I just had to keep going. Um, and the other thing I just really want to make clear is that it is possible to combine um, a family with a full-time career. I've never worked part-time. I've always worked full-time. We've had really good au pairs who've lived with us over the years. I mean, we haven't had an au pair for many years now, clearly, because my son's much older. But um, you know, with the right support, it's very, very possible to do that. You know, very. I had a lot of support uh, from family, you know, and um, really good childcare arrangements. My son became a very important part of my diversity work and started coming with me to parliament and talks I was giving at law firms when he was about 10, because I wanted to get him used to that. Um, and it's been great for him, of course, because he's now a real... Uh, champion for women in in STEM you know he's a future um, he's an aspiring software engineer um, and he's passionate about women in tech because he's seen the challenges you know he speaks on the radio about issues around race and young people and he's very very um, a very balanced mature you know happy young man so you know I just really want to encourage anyone who's listening to this thinking that it's inevitable they'll face challenges balancing. And this applies just as much to the fathers as well. Not, not everyone wants to be in the office all the time. It's both genders. It, it is possible to do both. I've done both and kept my career going. Um, it really, really is possible to do both. And it also yeah. makes you think that the switch that now we've realised that we all can work from home, it might make employers and workplaces more flexible to that kind of accommodating for families because if you're able to do like part-time in the office and part-time at home that just provides that extra bit of flexibility that is needed mm, absolutely yeah I, I we were talking about this I've been studying family law this second uh, semester and um, with Richard Collier I think you might know um yes. yeah yeah um, and that's been brilliant because I was in a seminar with, it was me, Richard, but he was obviously the teacher and eight or nine girls. And um, the conversation was about sort of how we thought about marriage. Um, and it started by just talking about it generally. Um, and often they would come to, there was the odd time where they'd almost asked me for my opinion. And um, I'll be honest, it was it was something that I, maybe had not done before but felt that it was really valuable um to the conversation and we were talking about sort of the changes that the the pandemic and working from home might have and how many men that obviously wouldn't have been at home now now they are home and realize just how much work there is to be looking after kids whilst working um 
And I thought that was, yeah, a really interesting thing and, and it could spark change. Yeah, I mean, I guess around the career as well, it became much easier to balance both when I moved in-house, when I moved from uh, being in private practice where you're a fee earner and you're generating fees and uh, measuring your very existence is dictated by six-minute units and time on the clock um, to moving in-house. You know, when I joined Roche um, a long time ago now, almost 10 years ago, it, that was my most senior role at that point in time, you know, joining the world's largest biotech company. Um, lots more responsibility than I'd ever had in private practice. But because I wasn't a fee earner, it became a lot easier for me to deliver. You know, it wasn't about time on the clock. Um, I'm very efficient with how I use my time. So uh, it became a lot easier in-house. And that's the route that a lot of, you know, a lot of women predominantly, when they realize private practice might not be supportive of their, you know, care and other responsibilities, uh, in-house has a very, very high uh, percentage of women lawyers uh, compared to, to private practice and there are many more female general counsels uh, than there are female senior partners or equity partners in law firms you know statistically so that's another you know route that uh, others might you know consider going through uh, and there are many other alternatives that we can talk about a bit later on because you don't have to practice law at all uh, having obtained a law degree there are mm. other things you can do. So what is your thoughts about studying a law degree um, and either becoming a lawyer and then maybe changing like you have or had and or doing the law degree and, and not even bothering and looking into other things? Mm. A law degree is valued in many, many, many different career paths outside of legal practice. It really is. If you think about the skills, the ability to, to read copious amounts and volumes of information and summarize it in a succinct way. Um, you know, there's so many uh, careers that need that skill set. It's not something that everyone can do either. It really isn't. I assumed everyone could do that, but it's, it's a very unique skill set to have the attention to detail, um, our use of words, the command of the English language and so on. Uh, really do lend themselves well to other careers. So whilst I did uh, practice as a solicitor, um, many people I know work in compliance roles. So they um, either partially qualified or didn't even go down the qualification route, didn't even, you know, gave up maybe on training contracts or didn't even think about that. I went straight into compliance, which of course is all about legal frameworks and how you can drive the right behaviors. And compliance applies across all sectors. You know, I was compliance officer, uh, amongst other roles I held at, at Roche, um, but there are compliance officers in banking, in, in various financial services roles. It's a massive, massive, massive growth area. Governance roles uh, lend themselves well to, to law graduates as well, because we understand the legal framework and, and how to... Um, you know, interpret the law because of our, our law degree. Uh, regulatory is another massive area that a lot of uh, lawyers, you know, people who've done law degrees or graduates have gone into. Um, I know uh, hedge fund managers and investment managers uh, who, who graduated uh, in law. Frankly, you can, if money is what drives you, uh, you can earn a lot far more uh, quite often in some of these alternative careers mm. than you do as a, as a solicitor. So, you know, training contracts can be very challenging to come by and increasingly scarce. And 
it can be, you know, luck of the draw as to whether or not you get one quite often. Mm. You know, so I just really want to encourage um, exploration of some of these other very, very rewarding and equally valid uh, career paths. Um, and those routes can lead to business leadership roles, which can be quite challenging to, to get if all you've done is practice law. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, if you, if you do manage to move in-house as a lawyer, which I did, uh, I ended up practicing law about 10% of my time. And the rest of the time I was running a business unit. I had full profit and loss accountability for a whole brand, um, a budget of millions assigned to me. Um, I led on large projects and trained to become a project leader. Um, I did compliance officer role. I was the head of financial compliance as well as being the general counsel. So I, I could have chosen a pure commercial path even within Roche if, if that was something I'd wanted. So I can't stress enough that um, being a law graduate has many, many, many options open to you uh, beyond private practice, getting a training contract and then practicing uh, as a solicitor. That said, we still do need excellent solicitors. So <laughs> I don't want you all to give up on <laughs> your training contract <laughs> aspirations, um, but there's many more options available. I always find it strange when people um, would say, oh, I've chosen to do a law degree because there's a, there's a definitive career at the end of it. I, when I chose my degree, I chose law because I maybe wanted to practice, but I also knew it would be really flexible and the skills that I would gain would be applicable to a wide variety of jobs. And so I don't know how you chose whether how you chose your degree Matt but when it came to me I do, I wasn't even thinking about the end goal I was thinking about all of the things that I'd read and um, things that I was interested in and mm. it all just felt like a nice fit and a nice umbrella of all of the things that I felt I was good at. Yeah I I don't know I'm I am a bit mixed to be honest I had a brilliant A-level law teacher um who was a, te a good teacher and a good friend now. Um, and she probably maybe motivated me generally just because introduced me to criminal law and it was interesting um, and cases and she gave her own, she used to work in the court. So she gave us her real stories. Um, and she always said that, she never said that, you know, you definitely have a job as a lawyer after it. And she always said that how many skills you, you'll get and that's transferable from a law degree. But I think I will be honest, when I think about myself at the end of, or during sixth form, when I was thinking about doing law, I probably did think um, that, you know, not that it's same as medicine where you literally do a law degree and you're straight into a job, but I did think that most people that do a law degree then go on to be a lawyer. Um, but I, I had been told loads that, you ha you, that that's not how it works. But I think maybe subconsciously I thought that, that that is how it worked. But obviously having got into the law degree almost straight away after the first week of, of induction or whatever it was and almost just getting the head around it, I realised that there is so much more um, that you can do with it. No, there really is. Um, so I want to ask what sort of challenges, because I think on that sort of issue about looking at different things, sometimes it's hard because, you know, it can be easier. Maybe in a way it's an easier option to think within barrister or solicitor just because it's linked to it in a way what sort of challenges or what was different when you went from being 
a solicitor with a law firm to working um, in-house or the, the other roles that you were doing? Yeah, so when you're in a law firm, you're a fee earner and you're treated like royalty because of that. You're the profit centre. Everything in the firm is set up to support you. The, you know, secretarial staff, business development, marketing, you know, IT, everything is around uh, supporting uh, those who are generating the fees. So you, you become quite, um, I wouldn't say arrogant, but you're made to be very aware of how important you are. And, and, and some people are frankly are arrogant, I, I can't lie. Um, but you, there's huge pressure on you to generate the fees, of course. So you're treated very, very special. When you move in-house, you're suddenly support function. You're not um, generating fees. In fact, you're an overhead uh, to the business, which can be quite, um, that was quite a shift to get my head around. Um, and it's much more of a leveler as well because other functions are also sort of vying to show what value they're, they're adding uh, to the company. And, um, and because you're a support function, you have to justify your... Uh, existence almost in a very different way you know so I went from being able to say that's what I build every month and that was how I justified being you know at the firm to having to find other ways for my team and I to actually show we're adding value you know we supported on this initiative which enabled access for patients for a specific drug or whatever it might have been so that was the biggest shift by far but beyond that the advantages were huge. Um, and I love being in a sector I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I love the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare. I feel very passionately about patient care. Obviously, I come from a family of doctors, so I'm surrounded by, by that. But it's quite a shift. And some people, not, not many, but I do know some people who struggled with that shift and who've then gone back to private practice because they've actually found it really difficult uh, being in a support uh, role and having to justify themselves in different ways. It's not for everyone, um, but most people I know find the transition fairly easy, uh, to mm. be honest. And it's very rare to move back uh, into private practice. It's still relatively rare from an in-house role. Sounds like even though you did a law degree, you could not escape the medical, <laughs> the medical aura that comes from your family. You just had to get back in there. True, very, very true. How, so how was it in terms of diversity? Did you find that it was different when you went in-house? Was it more mm. diverse? Were there more, like, were there more like initiatives for diversity? It was so much more diverse than, than um, law firms that I, I was gobsmacked. I, I honestly, and you know, the pharmaceutical industry, maybe Roche in particular, uh, I don't know if it's particularly unusual in being more diverse, but it was quite clear that the way that they were recruiting must have been different because we had over 50 nationalities uh, in the building that I worked in, uh, in the UK affiliate for Roche. And I saw representation uh, at fairly senior levels. We still, I mean, I was still the only black leader at that my level. I was the only C-suite black leader in that part of the, the business. But there are, there are a few other, you know, global leaders who were from minority ethnic backgrounds. Um, but I, I just saw that there was a lot more embracing of different um, skill sets, 
different, you know, universities, the whole Russell group divide that exists within professions like law, just in pharma, they really aren't that bothered, um, generally speaking, about whether it's Russell group, non-Russell group. You know, it's, you know, how well did you do in your degree? Were you passionate about it? Have you got the raw talent? Mm. Uh, it's all competency based as well. Mm. You know, that was so I could see that was shown in the variety and the breadth and diversity. And it felt very, very different. That that was the thing that really struck me, Neve, was that it felt different when I walked into that building at Roche uh, compared to the other uh, four law firms. And, and that's when I realized I'd been the only black solicitor at the other four law firms. You know, it was just extraordinary. And that, again, made me look deeper into what was Roche doing differently that the law firms weren't. And mm. it was around recruitment. It was the very, very focused talent management program that Roche and indeed other large organizations have. You know, I was in the talent pool and you're on a track. You know, this, these are the roles in two years, three years. It's a very, very carefully managed thing, which we tend not to see in law firms in quite the same way. This is a good point to just jump in. We've got a question. Um, we've got a question from someone in law school. So Liam Murray, who's a third year and he's a former guest host on the podcast. Liam had asked, as a member of Aspiring Solicitors, it's amazing to see the work that you undertake to improve diversity in legal profession. He says that there's still clearly a long way to go. And what do you think law firms should do on top of the use of rare recruitment and their partnerships with diversity organisations to improve diversity within their firms? My gold standard is what Hogan Lovells did. And I always call them out as being an exceptional example. And they've, they've been very patient, which is what's required around this. So they started thinking, we need to start with school children. We need to start with... Uh, you know, shadow days uh, for, for kids in, uh, you know, schools where, um, struggling schools, schools where they might not have uh, those aspirations and uh, have them come into the firm to see what's possible. Because, you know, we assume that kids are used to offices and, you know, a lot of children, I mean, my son clearly is because of who I am. And but there'll be so many children in this country who will have never experienced that. Uh, until possibly they start work, you know? So they started a scheme. I can't remember what the scheme was called, but it gradually got kids coming in, seeing the breadth of a career, not just being lawyers, but also the very, you know, lucrative career paths and the support staff uh, side, marketing director, IT director, and so on. And, and then these kids then started being the ones applying for the work placements. And then over time, you know, they were applying to be training, training solicitors and on and on and on. So we're now at a point where they're now uh, sort of mid-level senior associates. But this is over, you know, maybe a 10-year period of time. And that's what's required. You know, it's that kind of early intervention. Um, because word of mouth then starts coming into play. You know, the kids go back to school really excited. They all start doing much better academically as well because they can see that this is very, very possible for them. And, and that is what's required. Unfortunately, what a number of firms do um, is uh, ad hoc interventions at random stages in the sort of talent pipeline. So they might decide to prioritize the partnership side uh, and they'll be looking at senior associates and who's up 
for promotion. But of course, at that point, it might already uh, be diverse, you know, quite challenging in terms of the talent pool, if you think about it, because a number of women would have already dropped out by senior associates uh, phase, and you may not have anyone of colour at all uh, in that talent pool. So you do need to start much earlier with things like bursaries, financial assistance, and so on. And that's where I've seen real success. The firms that see this as a long-term uh, game, who are patient enough, have really reaped the benefit. And Hogan Lovells is, is one example that really stands out for me around that. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, that's a really good answer, I think. Um, I, didn't, I never really thought about it like that, that looking back, that, that yeah, bring kids in um, and let them see it. Because I myself am one of them people that I've had very little experience, if any real true experience of being in office. So if I am to go on to work in an office environment, it will be very new um, and then probably very overwhelming and different um, at first. And I'll realise just how much of an engine maybe it is and how many different people are involved. Um, so yeah, that is really interesting. Because this is the, I guess, official Newcastle Law School podcast, we'd love to know a little bit about your time specifically at Newcastle. Um, so obviously it was the early 90s, so I imagine a little bit may have changed since, but and, and, and you may not ever be able to remember everything, but just before we start on the actual... Newcastle the law school and things like what you enjoyed and things like that what did you love and where did you love in Newcastle when you were there I love the quayside I still mm. do um it wasn't it was it was always the, the hub of nightlife it's always been very very you know lots of bars and, and things like that um it's a bit more uh, gentrified now you know with art galleries and you know that never mm. existed the Baltic wasn't you know <laughs> just wasn't there. I think it was just an abandoned warehouse or flour mill possibly I don't know when I was there um great nightclubs uh, you know really enjoyed uh, that side of thing Friday night at the union was great fun always great fun lots and lots of gigs because uh, I love live music um so I spent a lot of time at live concerts and um, there was a great vegetarian. I'm not a veggie, but there used to be a really good vegetarian restaurant called Veggie. It must have been. Good. It must have been good if you can remember it. And you're not. It was. I remember everything. <laughs> I remember everything. Uh, it was great. I had. I have such happy memories, uh, and I come back often. You know, I still have friends who live mm. in the northeast that I studied with, and um, it was an awesome time. Really, really good fun. Um, and then a bit more related to the actual. The, the, some of the work that I imagine you did do when you were there. Um, what I guess, what modules did you enjoy? And did you do a dissertation? I didn't do a dissertation, no. I enjoyed all the corporate, you know, business-related subjects. So um, I remember in third year, I did insurance law, uh, company law, um, financial services was another thing I did. I really enjoyed contracts in the first year. Uh, again, because I knew that I was going to be a corporate lawyer. Those are the sorts of topics that... Uh, I was really, really fascinated by. I really enjoyed criminal law, but I knew I didn't want to practice uh, criminal law. I found the case law very, very interesting, especially mm. the role of the Privy Council with some of the cases that come from parts of the Commonwealth. Mm. Um, you know, just fascinating. There's one case called Thabomeli, which I have no idea if that's been, you know, still a. Oh, no, is that still yeah. the authority? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I remember that case still. I still remember that case. I think it was a referral from South Africa or somewhere um, in Southern Africa. But um, yeah, so um, I tended to enjoy the more corporate subjects. I found, I did family law in my second year, really enjoyed it. But I realized very quickly that being the very emotional character I am, I just would not be able to stomach family law. Um, and I'm very glad I didn't go down that route. I have a lot of friends who are family lawyers and they all go into meetings with a box of tissues. So, um, you know, that's not for me. But I, I loved it, really enjoyed it. Richard Collier, as you, you said, you know, was, he, was, um, a, he was Dr. Collier then. He, he wasn't a professor. And we were all much younger in those days as well, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> But I, rem I remember Richard very, very clearly. Um, no, it was it was wonderful. Really enjoyed my time yeah. at law school. Yeah, no, Richard's great. I've, I've enjoyed the lectures and seminars with him. Um, I actually missed out on my opportunity to be lectured by him um, because of the pandemic. My very first lecture, it, there were only about 20 of us in the lecture theatre. He stood at the front and went you'll get an email later today that you're going home. So uh, that's not even it. So I won't be teaching you. And <laughs> even though we only had him for about half an hour, I was gutted. Oh, what a shame. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Um, yeah. And you mentioned it a little bit just then um, about how you liked the corporate stuff. And, and I think that you kind of knew that that's what you wanted to do. Because I was going to ask, what were your ambitions when you were at Newcastle? And did they change? But by that and um, maybe maybe not no I was very clear on corporate from the start um, I didn't want to be a litigator I didn't want to do anything contentious um, because I'm not adversarial in, in nature I like to make things happen make deals mm. happen that said a number of my peers it was clear that's all they wanted to do you know um, and they, they're very very successful litigators today so uh, I love the business world uh, essentially and I really wanted to be advising directors uh, and businesses uh, and I've had no regrets about that it's it's led to many opportunities for me in my career okay so to finish off the podcast um we've got a couple of quick I say quick you can you don't have to be too fast but um some short answers um who inspired you and in the same question who inspires you so who inspired you when you were younger and who still inspires you now um my parents actually I'd say um both of them became doctors through getting scholarships um so you know I'm very proud of, of both my father studied actually studied in Germany um and learned German before he started his medical studies which I find astounding to mm. this day Fluent German, uh, incredible. Oh. But yeah, so both my parents were, were really the, the huge support that I had very early on and continue to inspire me. Yeah, I've been very lucky, very, very lucky there. And secondly, what is your favourite form of escapism? So away from work, what do you like to do? I love spending time with my son. He's great company. Mm -hmm. uh, we get on really, really well. Um, I often say he's my favourite person, and he really is. You know, we, we get on brilliantly. Um, hanging out with friends at the moment, going for long walks, you know, lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love the cinema. When we're allowed to travel, I really do enjoy travel. I've missed that so mm -hmm. much. Uh, but I do wind down. You know, I, I'm very, very careful about well-being and, and things like mm -hmm. that. 
Uh, at the moment, that what's really exciting me, which we haven't spoken about, is my podcast series. That's been yes. a great way uh, to to unwind uh, because I was just so worried about uh, what privilege and, and the word privilege was meaning to some people and how that was causing barriers to uh, improving quality and um, the use of white privilege. And you know, I find that quite a divisive uh, terminology, if I'm honest. So. Uh, I started a podcast series just this month called The Power of Privilege and Allyship, and uh, it's doing really, really well. It's available, you know, across all uh, platforms. Uh, my son's been a very important part of that, so mm -hmm. he's been recorded uh, for a few of the episodes. And I'm also writing a book uh, called Redefining Privilege, which is going to be launched in a couple of years' time. Uh, so I'm giving myself plenty of time to actually write it. But... That, that has actually been really good relaxation for me mm. because it's been wonderful interviewing guests and everyone's so excited to be a part of it. Uh, it's been great fun. No, I second yeah, I that, that, even though sometimes this feels like an, a tag on of my uni work. It definitely feels like an escapism just to sit, just to sit and have a chat and, and listen to someone else talk about what they're passionate about and interested in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Um, and last, I'm sorry, it's cliche, but what item, what one item would you take if you were stranded on a desert island? Oh, my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that we'd have Wi-Fi, of course, uh, but it would and have to be my to phone. And somewhere to charge it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely my phone, without a doubt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. I think most of our lives are on there. Yeah. Uh, these days <laughs> um great so that's the end of the podcast thank you very much Funka for coming on um it's been brilliant to have someone like you to finish the year for me and Neve on our podcast series um really good insights um to your life and your career thank you yeah, it's definitely a grand finale <laughs> <laughs> it'd be my pleasure And just like that, that's our that's our last episode of this year. That's 14 done, which I think is a massive achievement. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, Matt, but it feels like quite emotional to get to the end, yeah. to have done a whole year. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree completely. I think we remember mentioning 10, um, maybe after we got the first couple, because we could sort of see it then, um, and thought, yeah, it'd be nice to have a nice round number. But yeah, it's been 14 is a yeah, bonus and some. Um, and I think the big part of getting to that and going beyond the 10 has been after the new year, being able to get other people involved. And um, that's been brilliant. Um, most recently for me, I sat in with the solidarity team. Um, so there's a law student, Amy and Izzy, which is really cool to have another uh, person from a different uh, subject in the, from Newcastle uh, and then someone from the main sort of organisation. So that was, yeah, really interesting chat. No, and speaking of that, I really like the episode that um, episode five, which is um, was organised by Ricky Pancholi, who's yes. a, someone in our year. He had, like, I think he had four of the people on with him. He had a lecture. He had Josh Jarrett, one of the lecturers. He had someone, 
like a law student from Newcastle and you're a yeah. law student from another university and also I think a psychology student and so it was really like interesting to get loads of different perspectives on what was quite a broad debate um mm. so that was one of definitely one of my favorite episodes to supervise and kind of observe and not be a part of um but we've done some like really good episodes as well. I think definitely one, the one with Sarah Morley was one of my favourites. Her research was just fascinating and yeah. so bonkers that yeah, yeah, yeah. I could have listened to her speak about it all day. Yeah, yeah, that was, that blew my mind. Such a future thinking, um, innovative area was yeah really cool. It was. I went in because you'd done a lot of the prep for it. I'd gone in thinking oh well not really knowing a lot about what it was about I'd read through the prep material and read added some questions but then when we actually sat down I was like oh like all the questions went out the window I had so many more yeah yeah I guess looking at episodes we've done I can't help think about the brilliant Connell Mallory and um, who did the first episode brilliant not just for the work on the blog post he wrote about the overseas operations bill but also just because he was so supportive with us, knowing it was our first time um, doing this. Uh, and yeah, he was really, really supportive. Um, and I just sort of wish we could do it now with him because I'm sure it would be even more relaxed and not being uh, worried about um, just, yeah, getting getting our words out properly and having a good conversation. But yeah, he was, he was brilliant. No, definitely. Uh, the first couple to go and listen back to, so Connell and mm. Dave Reader and Colin Murray, they're all a bit, uh, they're all a little bit cringeworthy. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah. we've finally got into the flow of things, but um, no, everyone who has been on the podcast has been such good sports and has yeah. been so willing and open to talk about what they're passionate about, and it's been absolutely great to hear like so many different areas of law, so mm. many different like every like walks of life that people have come from I think it's been great to kind of show how like diverse legal professionals can be in yeah. terms of topics yeah. and also just like backgrounds and general yeah yeah no I agree I really enjoyed the chat with Kevin Crosby about um sort of the reforms the jury service um I thought that was a really good chat um clashing history and law and uh, equality and things like that that was yeah I enjoyed that um I really enjoyed the one that I did with my friend regime with Nikki um her like research about um portraits in the law um and looking at how like representation of women within law schools is important and it's something that you never really think about when you think of diversity initiatives you think of like you think of like positive discrimination and you think of like access schemes with law firms but you don't think of you know images and pictures but it is actually really important and so mm. that was really interesting to kind of get her perspective on imagery of women yeah. in the legal profession yeah yeah yeah. no there's some really good conversations um and it, was, it was I think I don't know whether you agree but I felt even more satisfied not when we when we released our first one of course but when he heard other people um really uh, recording them and, and if i'd sat in with them listening in or when you sat in with them and i got sent it before it got released just listening to the conversations and being like wow people are really engaged and hopefully um they can keep going and there'll be more and more conversations i do really 
think that it'd be great to have more conversations like the debate that you mentioned with Ricky and Josh and others and um, that sort of thing was was brilliant and it'd be good to have more than one of them a year um, but mm. and it'd also be nice to see how the podcast maybe transitions once we go because everything has been online yeah. everything has been on zoom this year but next year there may be the opportunity to not record on zoom and so it'll be interesting to see how that goes and what happens with that yeah definitely definitely yeah that'd be cool I think the odd bit of conversations uh, can, can work on zoom and they have worked well but I think there's that natural flow that you miss um when you're in person so I think the conversations will just get better and better um but I mean zoom is brilliant I think one one thing I picked out was when Harry Thomas a second year law student who was speaking to Admiral Technical Director Michael Cordner just in before and after the the, the chat when we recorded and we mentioned how um it's crazy times but zoom has made this happen if there, if we if you we weren't in these times harry probably wouldn't have recorded a podcast episode with michael because they're different ends of the country um and at the time i don't think i think one of them was in michael was in wales and harry was in england so he literally couldn't go and see each other well if you think wales and england are far away and <laughs> the um lawab episode um was with robin taylor and she was in America. So we had to record at like 4.35 o'clock in the evening and it was still like eight o'clock in the morning for her, which was absolutely crazy. But it's things like that. You would never have got that if we hadn't had Zoom. You would never have had the opportunity to interview someone on the other side of the planet. Um, so that I think has definitely been a benefit that we've been able to basically get who we want when we want. Yeah, and maybe going forward, it could be a, a mixture of the two, getting people in person, speaking to definitely speaking to the Newcastle uh, lecturers and, and researchers in person in the law school, that'd be brilliant. But um, yeah, if we're still able to reach out and get, stay global and keep going global, that'd be fun. Definitely. <laughs> but guess yeah, so thank I guess thanks to everyone that's got involved in the podcast. Um, so every guests that we've spoke to every student host um I'd, I'd like to say myself thank you um because it's been brilliant to see people getting engaging and and helping us and, and working with us and the sort of yeah the conversations have been really interesting yeah we couldn't have done it just the two of us <laughs> I don't think we have enough to talk about we wouldn't have been interesting enough for 14 episodes episodes I think so Probably it's not. been it's been great to have um everyone be so willing and so up for it sending all these people emails going please come on the podcast and getting a really enthusiastic response has been absolutely great and all the students who have got involved um I really hope it inspires other students um to show that you don't have to have done like loads of episodes you don't have to be an excellent speaker you can just have an interest in someone's work and talk to them about it yeah yeah I agree and also a big thank you to everyone behind the scenes on who've been in, like helping us through the law review and have believed in us and supported yeah. um us creating this podcast and getting it off the ground so yeah. it's been like it's been absolutely amazing we've yeah. been honored to have the privilege to you know run a podcast and it's been just yeah. great yeah yeah it wasn't our idea to set it up but um we've we've created it but yeah thanks to everyone for allowing us to because it's been really fun and getting us microphones that was fun that's been really good yeah. i think <laughs> <laughs> um 
And I guess a thanks from me to you, Neve, um, because I think I think as a team we've been brilliant, but really, really thanks. Um, you've been brilliant, sort of. We've worked well, but a lot of the time I rely on you and you maybe at times rely on me, but um, you always open and always communicate well and, and you always release the episodes, which I have not done ever um, across the four platforms, even when you've not even sat, sat in on them with guests. Um, so thank you for that. And yeah, just thanks for this year. It's been really fun. Thanks to you too, Matt, as well. It's been, you've been like there. I think you've ended up organising more episodes than me, but you're, I'm always there like, oh, I'm really busy. And you're always there to pick up the workloads. And it's just been great. I think we've worked, even though we've never met each other before doing this, we've worked really well as a team. And it's just been great to work with someone who's just so open, so willing to just go for it and has like the same passion and enthusiasm for the podcast as I do. Yeah. And finally, I think we need to thank the listeners as well. Thank you to anyone who listened to the podcast. Yeah, Mum and Dad, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks to the listeners. Thanks to everyone who's got involved, um, either on the podcast or behind the scenes. Um, we've had a great year and I hope that it's back next year. <laughs> I hope to speak to you sometime soon. Thank you.